Hey there, I'm so excited to tell you about Radiotopia's newest show, The Recipe with Kenji and Deb. Kenji and Deb are two of the best home cooks alive. J. Kenji Lopez-Alt of The Food Lab and The Walk, and Deb Perlman of Smitten Kitchen. Two of my go-tos to make sure I'm getting the perfect recipe for everything from meatballs to muffins. They're pros who obsess over techniques and essential ingredients, so you learn everything you need to create your perfect recipe. You can finally be excited to eat what you make, and maybe even impress your friends and family. Help us welcome the newest show to the Radiotopia family. Find The Recipe with Kenji and Deb on your favorite podcast platform starting February 26th. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Dear Diary. Sixth grade. February 14th. 1991. I am really depressed. How could she break up with me? Mom, you can't read this. When you're a kid, you don't get to make the rules, like curfew, what time you eat, what time you go to bed. And if you're someone who hates being told what to do, it can feel like you're doing time in a maximum security prison. So, inevitably, you rebel. I would stay overnight and not tell my parents where I was. And I think I snuck out one time. I skipped school one time. I tried ecstasy a couple times. And my parents just didn't know where I was. And whenever I did see them, I was picking fights with them, and we just weren't getting along. When Jill Crenshaw stopped getting along with the guards altogether, they decided to crack down on her freedoms, which led to an all-out rebellion that eventually landed Jill in another, more hardcore facility. Hi, my name's Jill Crenshaw, and when I was 15, I lived in Dallas, Texas. Mom and Dad didn't know what to do with my anger issues, so they did what every parent in Dallas, Texas did in the 80s and 90s. They put me in a mental institution. This is the Mortified Podcast. I'm Neil. And today's episode is part of a special Radiotopia-wide project, welcoming a new show to our podcast family. Ear Hustle features the stories of life in prison told and produced by those living it at San Quentin State Prison. But now, to celebrate the arrival of Ear Hustle, All Radiotopia shows are making an episode around the theme of doing time. Stories of feeling trapped, cooped up, or just plain locked away. And in that spirit, we present the strange but true tales of troubled teens who kept diaries while living inside a mental hospital. Behold, mortified interrupted. So yeah, if you couldn't tell, this episode's going to get a little dark. In Jill Crenshaw's case, her fate was sealed when she stopped seeing eye to eye with her parents. There was just no connection, no relationship at home. And my father worked all the time. My mom was one of those people that was like, you can tell me everything. And then I'd say, well, so-and-so and and I uh, left school early yesterday. And she'd be like, great, you're never seeing that person again. So I just decided that I wouldn't tell them anything about anything. Jill knew things weren't great at home, but she had no idea her parents were busy coming up with a plan 
I came home from school one day and I was invited into the kitchen for a phone call, but there was nobody on the phone. And I had friends in my room with me who were escorted out. And then I was taken into this car and held down in the back seat. And we pulled up at this place and a man with a white coat and a wheelchair with restraints on it came out and said, we can do this the easy way or we can do this the hard way. And that was it. Jill was officially committed. For her, the inside was another world. There was no TV, no music allowed unless there was a birthday party, no shoes, no metal forks, no sunlight, no physical contact. But she had her thoughts and lots of paper and a pen. And she could even use that pen as long as she hadn't been placed on Sharp's restriction. I was so worried on the inside that what I did to pass the time was I would write song lyrics to existing songs to describe my story. Uh, here's a song that explains my journey to get in, okay? Now, here's a little story I'd like to tell about a girl named Jill you know so well. It started way back in history with mom, dad, Jeff, Jen, and me, JC. I had a little friend named Leanne Steen, just me and my friend and some places to see, riding down the street, kicking up a beat, taking off the tees because of the heat. One lonely runaway I be, all by myself without my family. My problem's beating me and I'm all alone. The fights are getting worse and my friends are getting stoned. Looking for some love and so I came home. Next thing I know, I'm at Brookhaven Psychiatric Pavilion. <laughs> Nobody told me why I went inside. I thought that I had been framed for some horrifying crime and I literally felt like my mind was splintering because I was trying to figure out what I had done so wrong to warrant where I was because I must have done something wrong, which means I didn't remember what I had done, which means that I was crazy. So I was sure that there was something really off with me and that I was truly broken and I might never go home. Now, that wasn't that bad of a kid, right? But in the 80s and 90s, it was like all the rage. You send them back, they come back better. Um, so anyway, so I got admitted to Brookhaven and I got 30 days. After 30 days, I was put into what was called long-term, which was shocking to me. I was told that I had borderline personality disorder and I was told I had anger issues, which I think is pretty fair. And you're like, oh my God, I better stay and do the right thing or else they'll keep me forever. Like I became a Jedi. I was like, I'm not the droid you're looking for. They make us all write journals so they can like monitor our behavior and our feelings and our progress. Um, so I tried to make like the most mundane activities seem like, like therapeutically charged moments where I was learning a lot. Um, and I also really tried my best to like be like so not angry. April 21st. I've had a lot on my mind today. My doctor's leaving, found out some things from home, but I don't think I'll let it affect my day in horticulture. <laughs> I'm pretty glad there are only three of us down here. It felt more concentrated, and I think I got more out of it than I usually do. Later days, better lays. <laughs> June 22nd, what's up? Cool. I'm having a good day so far. I picked dead crickets out of a cage. Well, gotta go. I think they probably saw straight through it and were like, okay, she's not giving up, so we're going to keep her. There was insurance fraud happening. So 
um, they were inventing reasons for me to have to stay because my family had great insurance. Four years after the hospital, I got a call from the FBI who were investigating insurance fraud with this hospital. And then I saw my chart and I saw all of the things that they wrote in order to keep me there. So every time there was an insurance review of my case, they said things like my parents were both having affairs and I was dealing with that. Um, they just, yeah, fiction. So yeah, I felt wildly out of control. Like there was nothing I could say or do. And then the more that that would happen, the more I would shut down and be like, I'm going to control this. I can fix it. If I can just be the perfect patient. It's nuts, man. <laughs> it's really, it's really nuts saying it out loud. Yo, Ivan, what's up? You have a buddy now, Biff. He's my journal from speech. I'm getting awfully frustrated being cooped up inside all the time. I mean, shit, they can't expect us to do this. Well, you probably don't know how it is. You're just a piece of paper named Ivanovich. <laughs> July 5th. I had my first pass today. Yippee! It was pretty interesting being outside without staff. You know, it's been like six months since I've just been out. I had fun today. Well, gotta plow. Whenever somebody left the hospital, we would get to line up on either side of the electronic doors and you'd get to hug them. We would sob our faces off, both because we weren't leaving and that somebody amongst us was going. And yeah, and then the electronic click of those doors would open and you'd see that person get to go to an elevator that you never got to go to. And I saved all of the tissues from each person leaving. So I have a tissue with the name of each person leaving somewhere in a box <laughs> because those were the moments you got to actually hug someone and tell them how much they meant to you, which for me, I would never say in group because I was always so guarded. So you got to have those little personal things, which were, I don't know, it's like a movie. <laughs> Seriously. October 6th, 1989. Hey, today's my last day down here. I've really enjoyed spending Fridays here for about nine months. Bob, Betty, and Joy, you guys are great. I'll miss you guys a lot. I've learned a lot of things just down here in itself. It's sad, but also kind of exciting for me. Love you guys. Bye. <laughs> October 6, 1989. I'll never forget the day. Yeah, walking out those doors, flanked by all the people I had spent so much time with, crying my face off. It is such a bittersweet moment because you're leaving this safe place that even though it's damaging and it's not where you belong, it's not where you live, it's become this safe little haven. And then that electronic door opens and then it shuts. <laughs> and all the things in the world that feel safe are gone. And then you get in the elevator and you go down at the bottom floor and it opens up and you almost forget what was up there. And then you feel guilty for having the sun in your face when no one else gets to. And as each mile passed, driving away, you feel lighter and lighter and lighter and more like you're in the world you're supposed to be in. Yeah, I just wanted sun on my face. Wanted to swim in a pool and be able to touch people and laugh and say what I thought and hug people and listen to whatever goddamn song I felt like. Yeah, and then time passes and it just gets lighter and lighter and lighter and again, then it becomes this sort of wallpaper of your life. 
Yeah, that was hard. <laughs> okay, so I finally get out. Yes. Uh, but not without writing a few more songs. Um, I'll leave you guys with a sample of one of my favorites. Feel free to sing along if you recognize it. <clears throat> one and one, this place is no fun at Brookhaven all day and all of the night. Two and two, they took off my shoes at Brookhaven all day and all of the night. Three and three, they strip searched me at Brookhaven all day and all of the night. Four and four, they locked all the doors at Brookhaven all day and all of the night. Five and five, the staff is unkind at Brookhaven all day and all of the night. Six and six, the locks can't be picked at Brookhaven all day and all of the night. Seven and seven, they said it was heaven at Brookhaven all day and all of the night. Eight and eight, oh, I can relate, at Brookhaven all day and all of the night. Nine and nine, they fucked up our lives at Brookhaven all day and all of the night. 10 and 10, my discharge is when? At Brookhaven all day and all of the nights. Thank you guys so much. Jill spent almost a year of her adolescence on the inside, trying to convince everyone, including her journal, she wasn't crazy. Mark Finney, on the other hand, spent a few weeks in a mental hospital driving himself crazy, along with everyone else who listened. Now, a few quick notes. We're dipping way back into the audio archives of Mortified. This diary reading was actually recorded in Los Angeles over a decade ago, so the audio quality isn't what you're used to hearing. In addition, as a warning, some of you may find aspects of this next story upsetting as it deals with some dark themes. When I was about 19 years old, I was obsessed with two things, my girlfriend Karen and being accepted as a great artist, writing, directing, novelist, actor, filmmaker, everything. I didn't do any of these things. <laughs> I didn't write, I didn't act, I just like fucked around all day. On the surface, Mark seemed like a lot of teenagers. Big dreams, big heart, big plans, not a lot of follow through. And to understand how a kid like that ends up doing time in a mental institution, you first have to understand a little bit about his psychology. I would fight with my girlfriend all the time, and I put her through hell. I was a complete hypochondriac. I just was insane, and we would have these complete blowouts. And she put up with me. I mean, God bless her. She put up with me for years. I would start a fight in the middle of a uh, rock club. I would start a fight in the middle of a phone conversation. I would find something to pick on, you know, something to blow up into something bigger. Mark would, you know, take it to the level that nobody usually takes an argument to. That's Mark's high school sweetheart, Karen, who, despite the constant arguments, still has fond memories. Oh, my goodness. It was, we had such a dramatic young relationship um, it was like we were stuck inside of a John Hughes film. It was a f- really my very first relationship. As you had the romantic side and having fun, as well as the little bit of the obsession and jealousy and overbearing. It would be the jackpot of, of all teenage relationships. <laughs> According to Karen, Mark was truly one of a kind. 
If you can't tell by my bad Boston accent, I grew up in South Boston. You know, growing up in the streets of South Boston, they weren't listening to the Smiths or Morrissey. They weren't writing down poetry. Um, they weren't emotionally raw the way Mark was or creative. It wasn't just emotional rawness that drew Karen to Mark, but also a bit of mystery. He wouldn't talk about his family much at all. Uh, Mark grew up at his aunt's house, and she pretty much took care of him from the day I met him. I mean, she was like his mom. But he didn't speak much about his dad, just that how he was a horrible father. And what Mark did end up sharing about his family just made him more mysterious, at least to Karen. So he told me right off the get-go when I met him that his mom passed away. So fast forward to a family party, huge party, after we had been together for at least a year, in walks his mom. The woman who he told me forever was dead. (laughs) So I almost died. I couldn't believe it. And I'm like, why would you tell me your mother was dead? And she's alive. And he said, well, she's dead to me. (laughs) I didn't, well, I did tell him that that's, you know, you don't walk around telling people that your mom's dead if she's not really dead. And that I did try to push the issue a little bit to try to discuss it, but it was like absolutely not open for discussion. And so I did. I let it fly. You know, back then and as a kid, no way, no way. You don't want anyone to know anything. You try to hide as much as you possibly can. And if people find things out, it's awful. And a great way to avoid talking about the big stuff is to fight over the little stuff until it feels as big as the big stuff. And one night we had this huge fight and I threatened to jump out of her car and, you know, kill myself. And the fight was like over shoes or something. And I said, take me to the hospital. That's it. So she dropped me off at Mass General Hospital in Boston. And I learned a valuable lesson that night. Never walk into a hospital and tell them you're going to kill yourself. Because what they do is they strap you down, shoot you up with something, and you wake up in a mental hospital. And I woke up in a mental hospital. And I was in like the lowest ward possible. Like there was nothing wrong with me. I was just an idiot, you know? And I kept these journals while I was there. McLean Hospital, day one. These halls are a welcome change. After the leather-bound restraints and an eight-hour stay at Mass General last night, I arrived here at 5 a.m., slept, got interviewed three times, and got blood taken. I'm not sure why I'm here or what this place is all about. They say I'll be out early next week, maybe less. I'm short-term, zero to 14 days. I have privileges already. I mean, I'm not a lunatic. I'm merely depressed. It's kind of like the boys' club. I basically have everything I need. Food, toothpaste, comb, deodorant. Luckily, I had some on me, as always. I don't look at it as missing a weekend, but more like taking one off. I just tried to call Karen. She's sleeping. Good. I'll either try back today or tonight or this weekend. She's working all weekend. She'll think I called to apologize and then I'm home. But when she finds out I'm here getting the help I need on my own, the help that she wants me to get, that she told me to get, to get my problem taken care of, she'll be glad and she'll feel for me and miss me. I'll explain it all to her. Hopefully she'll visit me. If not, we'll see each other when I get discharged. Then we'll be together again once my problem is solved for our anniversary. She knows I'm not insane. I'm not. I'm just depressed and angry. And that's what this place is for. I'll have time to think and work things out here and write and read. Once I get out, I'll get back on top of things. Get my glasses fixed, write, act, diet, Karen, everything. Well, I have to get to a meeting. Later. I got a phone call hours later 
that he was at the mental hospital. And that was the first time I was most definitely worried. Yeah, well, after the initial like, oh my gosh, I'm so worried, what's going on, poor Mark. After that set in and like a little bit of reality set in, I absolutely said, what are you doing? You have to stop, you have to stop this behavior. Heading into a mental institution is definitely not a good plan to get attention. Absolutely not. It was impossible for me to believe that somebody would actually give a shit, you know? So, but, but that's all I wanted though. I wanted that attention, I wanted that love, I wanted that caring. Well, I was not over anything yet, I was still in it. I was setting fires because I didn't know how not to, you know? Self-assurance journal number one. Now, they didn't assign us to do self-assurance journals. I just did it, took it upon myself to do. Self-assurance journal number one. Any thoughts that I have of Karen being or having a great time or not giving two shits about me, I should exterminate. She knows I'm in here and is worried and is thinking about me. She wouldn't go off and not care about me being in here. We're still in love with each other and she knows that we're still one. And she probably wants to call me. Also, me being in here will always play a part in our relationship. The fact that I was in this place for help or whatever. I'm in a mental hospital and I'm still writing and reading and studying and researching. I'll probably go back to school in January and hook up with some more stuff there. I'm writing scripts, stories, theatrical pieces, etc. I'm struggling with life and Karen. I've got to get my glasses back. I could go to California. I am an artist and a writer. Today might suck in terms of nothing to do. I'll probably shower, make some calls, maybe a visitor, but who? Read, write, watch TV, maybe go out, hang out. I'm out of here tomorrow or Tuesday. I'll be back. <laughs> Meanwhile, today, Karen will either sleep all day or go to work tonight. Or she'll hang out today and go out tonight with Denise or Mike, whoever, but nothing extravagant or fun. She'll be thinking about me and how I am. She wants to talk to me. I love her and she loves me. Self-assurance journal number two. I know that Karen is still thinking about me. That she cares for me and misses me and is concerned about me being in here and when I'm out of here. She has not written me off or forgotten about me. I'm sure she's over the initial anger and hatred and is starting to assess the situation and is finding that she loves me and still wants to be with me. Like I said, she wants to call, but she feels like she can't right now, which is understandable. However, she will call in the coming week and she'll want to see me and we'll be together again in a healthy relationship. I know that she is thinking about me, missing me, and is concerned about me and wants to call or see me, and she will. She has not forgotten about me and still loves me and I love her. I was just messed up from childhood, to be honest with you. Like, I had this crazy childhood and a lot of those issues didn't get resolved until... Honestly, probably in my 30s. And I think it might have been at its height at that time. You know, it's kind of textbook. You know, my father was abusive. You know, he was a drunk. He was physical. Um, my parents fought all the time. They should have never really been married. Should have probably never had kids. I must have been six or seven. Because this was like 1977. We were just out for the day and we came home and our house was being put out by the fire department. And I remember walking through it after all was said and done and looking for, for anything that would be mine, like toys or whatnot. And really, there was like really nothing. He burnt our house down for the insurance money. So my dad ended up doing, I think, about a year in jail. 
I remember it was the year Star Wars came out. And I remember seeing it with my uncle to make me feel better. He took me to Star Wars because he knew what a shitty year I had. <laughs> I think every son has this thing where even if you don't want to, you feel this pull. And I think that's the dark side of the force, you know? Like, I am your father. You can't betray me. Um, and when you're young, that has a major influence on you, you know? Self-assurance journal number three. I know that Karen is now or will be thinking and or feeling like, wow, I haven't talked to him in days. I wonder how he's doing in there or if he's out. I miss him. I want to talk to him, but I can't. Not yet, at least. I hope he knows that I care about him. I should have been more receptive. I hate everyone. I need him. I want to call, but I can't. Not yet. I really do love him. I hope he's doing all right. Then she'll hear a song or see something that will remind her of me or us, and bang, that will be it. I was sitting in the music room today listening to Sgt. Pepper's, and a day in the life came on. I was alone, and it really hit me. Everything. Why I'm here on Earth. What I have to do. Why the Beatles broke up. I felt a lot. Self-assurance journal number four. I know for a fact that I would never, ever, ever murder Karen. <laughs> or anyone for that matter. I'm not a murderer. I'm a pacifist, a poet, a comedian. Yes, I do have anger in me, but it's self-destructive. I hit walls and throw things and I'm depressed. I just yell and then I cry, but I have never hit Karen or raised my hand to her or anyone, and I never would. I'm just not violent. It's not in me. But if anything ever happened to her, I would crumble. Or if it was at somebody else's hands, they would be taken care of. I love Karen. I was never afraid being with him for myself at all. The relationship never got physically abusive, no. Maybe like getting in each other's faces, but never hands on each other, ever. He once told a friend of ours, she was leaving on a trip the next day, and he said, I hope your plane crashes and you die. That's the level his anger took him to. So the fact that he did say that he wouldn't murder me, I do appreciate that. <laughs> but I know, I know the anger it came from. So right now, I, I, it probably shouldn't be funny, but I do find such humor in it. Gotta, why did I say that? <laughs> I think it was like trying to say, as crazy as I seem, please don't think I'm that bad. And it just came out in that line. It's, it's a little sad that he probably did think that he would snap like his dad. I didn't want to be a violent maniac. I didn't want to be abusive. I didn't want to be like him, which, who, which was just basically this drunk Irish East Coast bastard type, you know what I mean? I didn't want to be that. I always felt that I wasn't that, even though there was pieces of that in me. I worried more about Finney dipping into deep depressions, putting some Morrissey albums on loop and never turning them off, which that happens on the daily anyway. <laughs> Self-assurance journal number five. Karen does not think that anyone is more intelligent or cultural than I am. She knows that I put myself down a lot, but she knows that I am brilliant and cultured. 
that I have read and learned and feel the poets and the artists and the writers, etc. That I know film, everything in film and literature, all aspects. That I know what I'm talking about. I just have to look better. She knows that even though I'm a comedian, I'm also a poet and a writer and a film genius. I ask myself, as I'm sure others do, could I ever kill? Am I capable of murder? The answer for me, no! I'm not violent! Yes, I have anger, but it's one, self-destructive, and two, it's depression. I'm a writer, a comedian, I'm not violent. I can't even fight! I'm not crazy, because I wouldn't know it if I was, I would just go. When I think of violence, it's towards my art, my fiction, film, prose, etc. I've hit my low, and now I'm on the road to healing myself. But it's not a murderous problem. Not at all. Self-insurance journal number six. I want to change. I'm going to write and look good and feel good again. Clear up. Get rid of my mental drawbacks. Face my fears and tackle them. Like driving, for instance. I'm going to be driven and love life and live it to the fullest. I'm going to help others, especially kids. I'm even playing with the idea of becoming a counselor. I am not going to die. I'm going to deal with my problem now and heal myself. I'm going to make it up to Karen and I'm going to make us happy. I'm going to do what I always wanted to do and I will do it with no fear. The writing, weight, Karen, friendships, art, life, mental state, etc. I can beat my fears and do what I want. Live my life the way I choose when I choose. A drastic change is coming about. I love Karen. Thank you. I think I'm always going to be an element of that person, you know. Um, it's like depression. I don't think you get over depression. I think you just keep it in check. I don't see the anger anymore. I do still worry about the depression from time to time, but what are you going to do? We're in our 40s. We're all depressed. <laughs> and, but I do, I think it's great that he shared it, and I am honored to be a part of that crazy, messed up relationship because <laughs> it brought us here to a great relationship. And the fact that we're still good friends and can joke about it is just you know, a testament to who she is and who she was. Well, I still, if we're joking around, sitting there talking, I will still say, I'm so sorry I was a pain in the ass. <laughs> I mean, even at 45 years old, I, I carry around with me a thing of like constantly needing to apologize for things I've done in my life, you know? I think part of it was when you have that kind of childhood is you don't believe that somebody could love you. I think personally I might have been looking for a way out of it and every other relationship I had because getting too close to a relationship would mean something bad in the end. Wow, I can't believe I just said that. <laughs> this concludes Mortified's take on Doing Time where we learned no one experiences being locked up in a mental institution the same way. For some of us, it was truly hard times. This is the big story of my life. Um, and for a long time, it was this thing that I sort of fell back on that was like, oh, that's the reason I have trouble in relationships, or that's the reason I'm, you know, travel around a lot and never put my feet down firmly, and that's the reason why I get angry at people suddenly. I think it was an excuse for a long time. 
while others saw their stay in a mental hospital as the perfect opportunity for some me time. It was just another hangout. Like I played basketball here and there. I talked on the phone. I mean, it was honestly like kind of like a, a sleepaway camp for a week or two, you know, um, just with people that were being strapped down, you know. Be sure to check out all the other Radiotopia podcasts present their takes on doing time at radiotopia.fm. To share the shame, follow us on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or visit getmortified.com to learn about Mortified stage shows, books, films, and beyond. Click participate, and who knows? Maybe you'll appear on a future episode of this series. As many of you know, the Mortified podcast is a proud member of Radiotopia from PRX, which is made possible with support from the Knight Foundation. Thanks to Adzerk for providing their ad-serving platform to Radiotopia. If your company would like to support our podcast too, we would love that. Email sponsor at radiotopia.fm. Our podcast production team for this episode includes Hadley Dion, Shelby L. Atmani, Dave Nailberg, and myself, Neil Catcher. Featured readers included Mark Finney and Jill Crenshaw. Stories were produced for the stage by Ann Jensen-Smith. Music by Gordon Bash, Alex Burke, Adam Smith, The Angel, Zoe Rose Palladino, and Snake, Snake, Snakes. Big thanks to Lance Roberts Studios and all the dedicated Mortified Live producers whose work make the stage show possible. Until next time, we remind you that we are freaks, we are fragile, and we all survive.